welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 48. Huge program, ladies and gentlemen. I've I've heard your pleas and calls. I've made the necessary emails. And here we have it, a major guest on the show to follow our previous major guest from last week. Um, very, very important to talk about the subject matter today as we really focus on challenging the oligarchy in this country, challenging the single corporate party with its two wings. Uh, I don't know of a better person to have on the show to discuss that subject than Dr. Jill Stein, uh, probably known to just about everybody listening, but just in case you don't, uh, Dr. Stein is the presumptive nominee for the Green Party uh, on the presidential ticket this in this election. Of course, in 2012, she was the presidential uh, candidate of the Green Party as well. Definitely need to follow uh, Jill's stuff on Twitter at Dr. Jill Stein. That's D.R. Jill Stein. Uh, what else can I say? Jill, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. It's really great to be with you, Eric. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing this. I know your time is so limited these days because, as I was mentioning earlier, I heard rumors that we're having a presidential election in this country. <laughs> we sure are. And I think it's like it's one of a kind. It's never been like this before. And it's a wild ride, that's for sure. I was just, I did Fox News this morning. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they were having me on in the first place. And that um, they actually listened to what I had to say. I mean, go to my my social media and look at it. It's like, I'm still trying to figure this out. It, it began very hostile. And then by the end, they were sort of warming up to this idea of bailing out students. And maybe this would be a really good thing for our economy. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I've never seen anything like this. So hold on to your hat. Well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I want to touch on something. Uh, I wanted to keep it really focused on program, program and, you know, real specific issues that we need to address. But I think we should at least give some uh, attention to the news of the last couple of days, specifically the uh, the decision not to indict and not to pursue Hillary Clinton for this email scandal. I don't want to get into all the specifics. I really want to ask your opinion here. What does the conclusion of all of this tell us from your perspective about the kind of political system that we have in this country? You're always railing against the political system. I think this is a great example of it. What's your take? It sure is. I mean, it's just an, another example of how you know, there's there's one system for the 1%, and there's another system for everybody else. I mean, had this happened to an ordinary mortal, you know, who broke the law, uh, who put top-secret national security information basically, you know, uh, at great risk for uh, being, uh, you know, collected, observed, uh, stolen, etc., um, and who put lives at risk, actually, by exposing undercover agents and, and their names in unsecured settings. And, and it's not like she didn't know what she was doing, because she actually signed emails addressed to the whole Department of State telling them what to do. So there's no, um, you know, there's no excusing this. And, and it's, it's outrageous that she's not being uh, prosecuted and indicted. Uh, it's also outrageous that we don't know what she was doing with half of her time. 
because half of her emails got um, deleted as personal. So that's 30,000, you know, out of 60,000 emails. If an employee is spending half of their time on personal business, uh, you know, something is funny here. Something is very funny, especially when so many contracts have been doled out uh, through the Secretary's Department to Clinton uh, Foundation members. It's not just contracts. It's special partnerships. It's weapons deals, etc. Something smells very funny here, and the American people are entitled to know what's going on. It is indeed a sign of a rigged system and that we cannot trust Hillary Clinton, that we cannot trust this lesser evil one percenter party. Uh, we need to stand up for justice for Hillary. You know, if the same kind of justice was available to Chelsea Manning or to Edward Snowden or to Julian Assange, uh, it would, you know, or John Kiriakou, uh, we would have a very different um, national security situation. So, you know, this is time to stand up for justice and to stand up for the political. Uh, framework for this justice, or I should say the political vehicle for this justice. If we do not have a political vehicle for the justice, we are just, you know, uh, you know, uh, tilting at windmills here. We need to be serious. We need to have a real challenge. In the words of Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand. Uh, never has, never will. We have to be that demand in the place of political discourse. That's absolutely right. And and one specific thing that I just want to point to about this whole Hillary Clinton scandal, which in fact is just one of myriad scandals that she really is involved in here, but it's yet another example of a pattern of blatant criminality. And to be fair to, to, to Mrs. Clinton, she's certainly not the only criminal in Washington. She's certainly not the only criminal on Wall Street, but she is in many ways the embodiment of that kind of criminality, whether it's waging illegal wars against the people of Libya or supporting illegal wars against the people of Iraq or exploiting the people of Haiti or what have you, we can point time and time again to a pattern of this kind of criminality. And I think that's really what uh, represents, probably better than anything else, the political class in this country. That's right. And she's not only a reflection of this, you know, uh, bias, advantage, um, criminality. She's not only a reflection of it, but she's actually an instrument of it as well, because the kinds of policies that she has promoted, you know, have just been real, um, you know, linchpins in this unraveling of our system of uh, not only criminal justice, but economic justice, as you pointed out, war, you know, the, the, the bills that, you know, the pieces of legislation that she helped support, that she has taken credit for, together with her husband, Bill Clinton, the two of them are really the symbol of neoliberalism in the Democratic Party. And, of course, they are not the only instruments, and there are lots of others in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party. Um, but, you know, she has been a real driving force of these very destructive policies and it's if we're if we're ever to have any hope of changing direction of you know of stopping our our rush over the cliff here where we are going um we really need to stand up and tell the truth about this and to turn this around 
There's no doubt. And again, the point here really is Hillary has, in many ways, essentially ceded uh, political ground on a number of fronts to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, in many ways, has benefited so much from the fact that it is Hillary Clinton that is his opponent. If you look at it, it's Donald Trump, the far right wing uh, race baiting, you know, uh, narcissist who has the anti free trade position, who has the defend social security position, who has the outsider politician position. All of these, uh, all of these sort of uh, places that he's inhabiting on the political spectrum are directly related to the fact that Hillary Clinton is, in many ways, a right wing neocon. Exactly. And there's another dimension of this that I'd love to mention, just piggybacking on what you're saying here, which is that um, Donald Trump is in some ways a very direct product that is his success as a political force grows right out of the economic misery created by the Democratic neoliberal policies, particularly passed and cheered for by the Clintons. That is, you know, the, uh, the offshoring of our jobs through NAFTA, thank you to Bill Clinton with Hillary's support, and the meltdown of Wall Street that grew out of Wall Street deregulation. You know, the crash of our economy that disappeared 9 million jobs and enabled Wall Street banks to seize 5 million homes from families. You know, this is very much the uh, economic crisis that generates this right-wing extremism. It's widely recognized that this is sort of the force that is uh, lifting up Donald Trump, you know, a- along with the anti-immigrant, you know, racism, et cetera, that comes with this kind of, you know, austerity um, uh, situation. So ironically, it's the policies of the Clintons that have led to the rise of right-wing extremism, and Donald Trump. So it's very important to recognize that putting another Clinton in the White House, or any neoliberal for that matter, is not going to solve this. It's only going to fan the flames of that same economic um, austerity, adversity, misery, the same thing really that's driving you know, the Brexit uh, in the EU. It's very much these globalization policies that are the direct product of of the Clintons. So, you know, more Clintonism is not the solution to Trump. It's really important that we actually stand up. And if we have to take some hits, we take some hits, but we've got to build our power as a progressive movement that's not dictated to by the predatory banks and the war profiteers and the fossil fuel giants, the usual suspects who are funding both the Democratic and Republican parties. We need to stand up as a movement uh, and understand that nobody else is going to fix this for us. It is a race to the bottom between the greater evil and the lesser evil. Neither of us, neither of them is getting us where we need to go. And certainly uh, Clinton and the neoliberal Democrats are not going to solve this. We have no choice. There's no quick fix here. I'm sorry, folks. There is no Santa Claus. You know, uh, we're the ones we've been waiting for, and we need to stand up and solve this. And you know, if we actually did stand up with the courage of our convictions, we would have a wonderful surprise because just on the strength of student debt alone, that is 43 million 
young people and not-so-young people who are locked into predatory student loan debt and have nowhere to go to save their hides, uh, they can only vote for our campaign if they want to have a life and a future and, and a job and get out of debt and a home and a family. Uh, that depends on us. No one else is going to do that. And if that word gets out, that people in debt can actually come out and end their debt by voting green in 2016, we actually have the numbers to do that. 43 million people in debt is a winning plurality of the presidential vote in a three-way race and even more so in a four-way race. So, And if they bring out a family member, we could win a two-way race. We have a, um, you know, a, a crisis, an, an absolute epidemic, an overwhelming emergency of student predatory debt. And this is like the elephant in the room in current society. Why is the birth rate plummeting in the United States? Because we have basically eviscerated a generation that's been uh, hung out to dry and has no future and is missing in action because they are too busy working two and three part-time jobs just to keep a roof over their head, let alone, you know, try to um, uh, end their debt. So this is a generation without a future, and in my experience, when they discover that they could actually take their future back with a couple hours' worth of standing in line and voting, that they have the numbers to take over this election and win it, not only for justice on student debt, but the whole spectrum of justice and peace, because this is an abused generation that has learned the hard way you know, about this predatory economy. They have the uh, real potential to come out and win this for all of us. So, and by the way, the president can implement this without having to put it through Congress because it's essentially the Federal Reserve that does this kind of a quantitative easing, which is what needs to be done and deserves to be done. We did it for the friggin' bankers. It's about time we did it for their victims. And we can for far less than what we did for the bankers. So this is actually a rather complete package for liberation of a generation. And if that word were to get out, we could actually win this election uh, and, uh, you know, not split the vote, but flip the vote and turn us underdogs into the top dogs if we simply had the courage of our convictions. In the words of Alice Walker, biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. And the good news is we actually have it. If we just stand up with the courage of our convictions, we can use it and transform this world and our future. Yeah, let's. I want to. I want to get back to that because I think that we need to really flesh out some of these policy proposals that you have, which are all, of course, very good. But I want to just quickly touch on where we started in that uh, question. There, you brought up an excellent point that it, that Clinton and Clintonism and neoliberalism sort of gave rise to Donald Trump. But there is the other side of that coin, and that is that Donald Trump is being used as the convenient tool to give rise to a Clinton presidency, a boogeyman for us to be scared of, to be scaremongered into once again supporting the lesser evil. Yeah, sure, we know Hillary Clinton's uh, hands are covered in blood of Libyans and Iraqis and all the rest of that. Sure, we know she works for Wall Street and she's a puppet, but hey, she's not Donald Trump, so I guess every liberal and every progressive who's worth anything gotta support Hillary, right? Yes. 
That exactly is the uh, propaganda campaign. And uh, one, one important response to that is that um, the scary things that Donald says, Hillary has already done. So, for example, people are worried about, you know, uh, Trump and nuclear weapons. Well, Hillary wants to start an air war over Russia, that's uh, over uh, Syria, with Russia. That's what a no-fly zone is. It's essentially an air war with other combatants who are already in the air, and that's Russia, a nuclear-armed power whom we've already been taunting uh, on nuclear weapons and on a whole lot of other issues. So this could spin out of control really fast. So you would be nuts to feel comfortable with Hillary Clinton if you're scared about Trump. Hillary has a proven track record. Not that, not that anyone should feel comfortable with Trump, but Hillary is not a solution to Trump. She's already done the scary things that Trump suggests or on wars. There's hard to imagine a more catastrophic disastrous war that Hillary almost single-handedly led the Washington establishment into, and that is Libya. Uh, if you look at immigrants, and people rightly shudder at the way Donald Trump talks about immigrants, but look at what Hillary Clinton is doing to women and children who have fled Honduras, where she actually created the violence that's taking place there, not single-handedly, but she gave it a thumbs up, uh, a very critical thumbs up, gave, gave approval to the corporate coup in Honduras that has led to the incredible violence and then the, the um, refugees who are basically fleeing for their lives. And she basically agreed with President Obama to say, no, bar the gates from these dangerous women and children. Send them back because, you know, we don't want them coming here and taking that dangerous journey. Well, you know, we'd rather they stay there and, you know, and be abused and, and murdered and raped and all that. You know, I mean, what, what they're doing, Republicans are the party of hate and fear-mongering, but Democrats are the party of deportation, detention, and night raids on women and children. So there is no comfort to be had here in, uh, you know, in saving the day with a Hillary Clinton instead of a Donald Trump. And when people say to me, well, aren't you going to feel really terrible if Donald Trump gets elected and maybe you made the difference, which I don't accept, uh, you know, categorically from the outset. But let me say I will feel terrible if Donald Trump gets elected, and I will feel terrible if Hillary Clinton gets elected. And what I feel most terrible about is a political system that gives us two deadly choices and says, here, pick your weapon of self-destruction. We have to stand up to that system. In fact, we could solve this voting fear thing in the stroke of a pen by enacting ranked choice voting, which is a voting system that's used in cities all over the country very successfully and is used in countries all over the world. It lets you rank your choice in single office elections like a president or a, or a governor or a mayor. Um, and we could pass a bill right now, there's model legislation that's been produced that would enable any state to protect itself from any kind of divided vote or unintended consequences by creating ranked choice voting. And that means when you go to the polls, you rank your choices. And if your number one is an underdog like me and say we don't win, your vote is automatically reassigned to your number two. So it gets rid of this whole notion of 
unintended consequences or a split vote or spoiling or whatever term you want to use, we don't need to have it. It's fear voting. When, when I was first tricked into running for office, running for governor against Mitt Romney in 2002, my campaign worked with a progressive legislator to file that bill so that there would be no splitting of the vote. And in fact, what happened uh, was that the Democrats, 85% of the legislature, so they were in control, they wouldn't let that bill out of committee, even though it would have preempted any possibility of a divided vote. They would not let it get out because, and they never do, because they rely on fear. They need fear. They want fear. Well, what does that tell you? If they rely on fear to capture your vote, that tells you that they don't have anything to offer for your vote if all they can do is constrain it and force it. So they are not your friend. And that alone should be reason enough to deny them your vote. So we can fix this. And I really suggest that people who are bent out of shape about, you know, uh, hand-wringing about how the vote could be, you know, have unintended consequences, will, you know, in fact, direct that anxiety towards your legislature and have them pass ranked choice voting right now. We can preempt it. That bill could be passed on an emergency basis this week, and we could go forward and have a real debate and not think that the solution to a wounded democracy is less democracy and supporting the dialogue and political opposition that, in fact, democracy depends on. We could actually have a real debate, <laughs> have a real election in which we inject our values. To have an election where you can't inject your values, what does that mean? You know, how do you have a democracy without your values? Democracy needs a moral compass. And if we silence ourselves to make room for a lesser evil, you know, we have created that moral vacuum into which the political predators rush. And that is what's taking us over the cliff on climate, on nuclear weapons, on endless expanding wars. This isn't going to fix itself. This is a time for us to stand up and for, forget the lesser evil and fight for the greater good like our lives depend on it because they do. No doubt about it. Um, I want to I want to touch on uh, something else that's in the news right now. We had a story from the New York Times, which I believe was today. Uh, we're recording here on July seventh. Um, now, I guess when people are listening to this, this uh, will be probably tomorrow or today, depending on when you're listening. But Bernie Sanders is, at least according to the New York Times, going to be formally endorsing Hillary Clinton for president at uh, some campaign function of his. Now, I'm not going to get into, you know, everything about Bernie and my issues with Bernie. I've made that very clear on this show many times before. People can go listen to those conversations. But what I want to ask what I want to ask you, Jill, is um, what does it tell us about our system when there is a, you know, progressive-ish candidate who comes out, generates a huge following, a huge movement, and then despite all of that, despite hundreds of millions of dollars raised, I think Bernie's campaign raised something like $215 million, which is an astronomical amount, despite all of that, it completely sputters out up against the political 
machine. And so when I hear you or anybody, you know, talking about uh, reforming campaign finance or reforming, you know, the way we do our ballots, I, I don't disagree with any of it. But we also need to understand that it is fundamental reorganization of the political system, not just a reform, but a fundamental change to it that's required. And no Bernie Sanders and nobody else under the Democratic Party tent is ever going to be able to do that. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's why, (laughs) you know, that's why uh, we're here as an independent uh, political party. And I sort of try to avoid the term third party. In my view, this is real party. You know, it's like the only real party, because if parties are um, bought and paid for by corporate money and, you know, and, and the rest, they're not real parties. They're just, um, you know, they're, they're, they're storefronts. They are they're Trojan horses for, you know, for corporate rule and, and for oligarchy. So, you know, this is why we have independent politics that doesn't take that money. And, you know, there are many such uh, independent political entities, but the Greens just happen to be the one that still has national scope. So we tend to work together and share ballot access and all that. Um, but I, I fundamentally agree with you, which is why, you know, for me, this is kind of like what I do every day, uh, you know, day in, day out, campaign in, campaign out is try to build real political power because it was clear to me when the Democrats killed public financing of political campaigns in my home state in Massachusetts in 2002, it was like, okay, folks, the revolution is not going to happen in the Democratic Party if they can't even tolerate, you know, uh, getting out from under the stranglehold of big money in politics, you know, and, and that's the truth. And you can look at every reform movement in the Democratic Party, uh, they all go to the graveyard, whether it's Bernie, whether it was Dennis Kucinich, who exactly. got rejected, whether it was, uh, you know, Howard Dean, not exactly a deep reformer, but a priest candidate at any rate, you know, who had the Dean scream smeared against him, Jesse Jackson, who got smeared in the full power of his campaign in the civil rights movement, you know, and then you had the, um, uh, the realignment campaign, uh, during the civil rights movement, which was an effort of civil rights and labor to reform the Democratic Party. They all go to the grave. It's a fake left, go right strategy by the Democratic Party to, to, allow, to allow these progressive flourishes to have their moment, but to use them as cover while the party continues to become more corporatist, more militarist and more imperialist. We're not going to get out of here alive. So, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But going on, you know, fool me hundreds of times. Uh, we are nearing, you know, the day of reckoning here, whether it's on climate, whether it's nuclear weapons, whether it's endless expanding wars. We're not going to last very much longer. A recent report you know, delivered by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, just verbally reported, and they'll be putting out the written report soon. Uh, They called it an oh-my-God report that they had just received from the Antarctic about the ice sheets breaking up much faster than ever thought. You know, I know as a scientist and medical doctor, that's the way it always works. 
you know, it always turns out to be much faster than any of the corporate-influenced scientific establishments ever would have predicted. You know, so it's about time to, like, get with the program on that. But now suddenly they're saying we could see nine feet of sea level rise by 2050, and that is a civilization-ending hit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really important, in my view, that we stand up now, that we take back our democracy now, or at least the promise of our democracy, we've never actually had one in full, certainly. Um, but we need to stand up now. Uh, it's no holds barred. Uh, we really need to take transformative action now. And you used the operative word there. It's really transformative. This won't happen around the margins with a little bit of policy making here and there. This really needs a fundamental transformation. It's not only about you know who is driving our politics. It can no longer be the corporate predators. Uh, the deep state, the military-industrial complex, the war profiteers, the the predatory banks—you know—they they, they're out. It's over. They had their turn, and we need to take the reins of our, um, you know, of our lives back into our own hands now, while we still have a moment. And that's about all we have. Uh, we, you know, we cannot take for granted any hour that we have. It's very important that we make profound and transformative change. When people say to me, aren't you afraid of Donald Trump? One of my responses to that is, no, I'm afraid of climate change. And the Democrats have done just as bad a job, arguably a worse job, under, you know, a Democratic White House with two Democratic Houses of Congress that not only gave away the store to Wall Street, but that embraced all of the above. And that's been, you know, the policy of the Democrats, which has been absolutely devastating to the climate. So they are not going to fix it for us. It's time to face the music and to stand up knowing that if we do that, we actually have the power to turn this around on a dime. So, you know, time to forget that lesser evil and stand up and fight for the greater good. We have the policies that will do this. They are not hypothetical. They are road tested in various degrees, like the Green New Deal that will create 100% clean renewable energy by 2030 which is enough time to stop the climate catastrophe, to turn this around uh, as, at the same time that we revive the economy, that we make wars for oil obsolete, and it pays for itself just in terms of the health benefits alone from stopping the you know, disease epidemics associated with pollution, everything from asthma to heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. So we get a whole lot better, and I can verify that from my uh, decades as a medical doctor, that um, the research is very clear on this. This pays for itself because we get so much healthier. There's no reason not to do this. Um, and that, you know, that can be the fundamentals of turning around our economy and our ecology, which are critical, but all of that depends on really taking the reins of democracy into our hands. And along with that, I, you know, I just have to add also, given current news, you know, the, the developments in, um, uh, uh, in Minnesota and in uh, Louisiana uh, just in the last two days with these unbelievably tragic, horrifying stories of police, unprovoked police assault and murder, you know, are just absolutely unconscionable. And, you know, this this epidemic of racist violence goes hand in hand with, you know, with all the other forms of economic violence, which 
plays out in a very big way racially, the resegregation of our schools and our housing and uh, you know, and the way that student debt falls hardest on communities of color and uh, environmental racism is falling hardest on communities of color. So this is a part of that transformation that all goes together. Uh, nobody ever came into my office as a doctor and said, just take care of my left kidney. You know, we're whole people and we live as a whole society and justice comes together. Uh, that is racial justice, economic, climate justice, worker justice, LGBT and women's justice, uh, immigrant and indigenous justice. Justice comes together as a piece because the threat you know, because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we need the whole tamale here of a future for people, planet, and peace that puts justice at the head of the game and that puts profit uh, at the end of the line. So we are putting people, planet, and peace over profit. This is something that is within our reach when we stand up and insist upon it. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, I know I'm up against the clock here, and I got two other points I just want to hit before I let you go. Uh, you mentioned you used a word in your previous comments, Jill, that, well, already sets you apart from both political parties, from every elected official that in the U.S. on the national level, and most likely almost everyone on, the, on even the state and, and local levels. You used the word imperialism, and this is something that is so conspicuously absent, even from Bernie Sanders. And again, I'm not trying to get you to trash Bernie or anything like that at all. What I mean to say is that even when we're faced with a push from a, you know, progressive, at least within the Democratic context, progressive candidate who does not touch the issue of war with the empire. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, but beyond the dollars, we're talking tens of millions of wounded and killed men, women, children, all of the people around the world, just outside of the United States, around the world, especially in the global south, suffering from the kind of profit-making agenda that is the military industrial complex and that is the empire and nobody except for you and some of the other non-major party candidates wants to talk about it absolutely and this is you know this is the elephant in the room and you know we don't get out of here alive unless we deal with this you know to my mind this is one of the major uh you know challenges to our survival and us you know, let alone all those people, you know, who are being, uh, you know, directly the victims of it. And there are 65 million people right now, you know, which who are on the move largely as refugees from war uh, and also from poverty, but in particular from war. And this is tearing apart um, the Middle East and it's also tearing apart the UK. So, you know, th this is not survivable. And the worse war gets, uh, you know, the more intolerable this becomes, this foreign policy that uh, is based on military and economic domination is unraveling, you know, civil society as we know it all over the world. And some of that blowback we call terrorism. And that terrorism is not going to be fixed by more bombs and more bullets. That terrorism will be fixed by a new kind of offensive, we call it a peace offensive.
of that will, um, you know, that will initiate a, an arms embargo to the Middle East and that will put a freeze on the bank accounts of those countries that are funding these enterprises uh, and, and do sort of the common sense things we can do to actually stop this malignant expanding war in its tracks. This is half of or more than half of our discretionary budget. It's almost half of your income taxes. 54% of our discretionary budget is spent on the military. The next biggest budget item is 7%. This is absolutely staggering. We have essentially a military budget with a few footnotes around it. So this is not okay. Every American household will have put in $75,000 for the wars on terror since, uh, since 9-11 and the trade towers. $75,000 per American household by the time we've paid for the medical care of our wounded veterans. Uh, you know, and that doesn't even consider the, uh, in the million people killed in Iraq. Uh, alone. So this is not survivable. The American people are going bankrupt financially and morally. We can stand up. There are good solutions here. Um, solving this problem is part of what we can do with the Green New Deal because it makes wars for oil obsolete. They can no longer be justified. It calls for downsizing massively our military budget and putting those dollars into true security here at home in housing and health care and jobs and education. So this is a win-win. The minute we stand up, the missing link here is simply the courage of our convictions and the realization that we are the ones that we've been waiting for. It's time to throw out the lesser evil and the bums that support it and to stand up for the greater good and to fight for it like our lives depend on it because they do and because we have the power to turn this around. Uh, definitely. Now, finally, I just want to give a little bit of attention to the the Green Party and the future of the Green Party and the direction that it's going. And part of the reason I'm 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 getting at this is because you know um, I've I've had you know uh, discussions with people about how to organize, how to mobilize, how to build political organization both at the national level and in the communities at local level at the local level as well. And one of of the things that I would like to ask you is um, to what extent is there a strategy within the Green Party and within its membership, its rank and file, that goes beyond just the electoral politics? Because we see the Green Party, we obviously, I, I can speaking for myself, I have at various times supported candidates of the Green Party, but one of the issues is that some people are left feeling like all of the non-major parties show up every couple of years, do their campaign, and then kind of fade away. And so my question to you is how does the Green Party intend to organize in the streets at the grassroots level on the non-electoral context? And one of the things that I brought up in a previous episode on this show, uh, we talked about, and it was sort of jokingly said, but this quote-unquote a Green Panther Party, right? So the, the, the Black Panther model of survival programs in their communities, providing things like uh, free breakfasts and lunch, helping people losing their 
homes, people being attacked by police and so forth. One of the things that I think the Green Party is very well situated to do is to establish a national network in the communities most impacted by all of these policies and say, if you're losing your home, here's a place to go. And guess who's backing it? It's the Green Party. If you're being uh, harassed by the police, here's a place you can go to talk to somebody. And guess who helped you to get that? It's the Green Party. So this idea of a non-electoral political strategy, I think, is equally important to the campaigning that is also obviously important. I want to get your take on that. Great. And you may hear my phone beeping because my battery's almost out. So yeah, I'm going to do the short version, but yeah. I'll say you know, I totally agree with you. And that idea, you know, there are many former Black Panthers who are in the Green Party now. Uh, it's become sort of a, um, you know, sort of uh, a home for a lot of former Panthers. So that kind of idea about promoting community self-sufficiency is very popular in the Green Party. And the Green Party is extremely grounded in the social movements. Now, uh, we may or may not be recognized as Greens in those social movements, but we are very much in the backbone and the heart and soul of those social movements. Everything uh, everything from climate to Black Lives Matter to the living wage campaigns, uh, the anti-war movement, it is full of greens and, you know, and the anti-student uh, debt movement, etc., full of greens. And because there has been a war against independent politics, uh, it's been, you know, very hard to do the organizing that we need to do. People have been very intimidated and cowed by that uh, fear campaign and the smear campaign. But I think uh, we are coming back. A lot of former Greens are coming back into the party. Uh, there's a much more vigorous party structure coming out of this campaign. And, you know, uh, hopefully, I, you know, I would say more than hopefully. I think there's no doubt that we are coming out of this with a lot of uh, non-electoral projects that are going full speed ahead. So I really encourage you and other people become, to become part of them and even consider coming to our convention uh, in Houston in the first week of August where some of these discussions will be taking place or, you know, just participating in the campaign. And then after the campaign, there will be, you can be sure, a whole lot of reorganizing discussions as the party becomes more uh, able-bodied um, and capable uh, of actually having a well-developed game plan going forward. Okay, great. I've already kept you over time, and I don't want to lose you and, and your phone. So I want to thank you again for coming on the program. Obviously, Jill Stein is great. Uh, at Dr. Jill Stein on Twitter, at Dr. Jill Stein, obviously presumptive nominee for the Green Party in this election. Um, again, Jill, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time. I know you have such a busy schedule. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking with you, Eric. So Listeners, thank you as always. Speak to you real soon. 